If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 630. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to McClanahan Academy. Always free to enroll. Also, support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com, clicking on the support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can also click on the shop tab while you're there. You can purchase my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Send me those show requests. This is a great way to grow the audience. Also, share the podcast around on social media. Again, let people know you like it. That's how we get more people engaged and involved. And the, the audience is growing, right? And we need organic growth. That's the best way. We don't want bots out there liking the show. So we want real people that are interested in real solutions to America's problems. And that's federalism. All right. So let's talk about the topic of the day. I'm gonna, I know I talked about uh, the court last week. And I want to wrap that around this week. I know yesterday I didn't talk about the court. But I wanted to do one more thing with it. And it's an interesting piece that appeared in the American Spectator. Now, one of the things the left has done since this uh, leak of this potential decision by the Supreme Court is suggest, and even some quote-unquote conservatives, that these Supreme Court justices lied to them. They lied to them during their confirmation hearings. And this piece at the American Spectator outlines that, no, they really didn't lie. Now, before I get into that, that piece, because it's really good, I want to talk about this nomination process. Up until about the 1950s, it really wasn't... Uh, the Nominating Supreme Court justices isn't the way we do it now. Now, there were justices that were rejected. In fact, uh, you go back to the Madison administration, and there was a very famous incident where one of his nominees was rejected. His name was Walcott. And Walcott was deemed to be uh, unqualified, number one. But number two, the New Englanders didn't like him because he supported the Embargo Acts when, of course, Jefferson was president and Madison was Secretary of State. So he supported those Embargo Acts, and these New England, they, they were completely against it. What's also interesting about that particular period of time after, you know, Wolcott, during the Wolcott period, Madison actually considered John Quincy Adams to serve on the Supreme Court. And Adams turned him down, so he ended up with Joseph Story. Now, when you look at these people that Madison was nominating, he was looking for a sectional judge. He wanted someone from New England. Wolcott's from Connecticut. Now, Oliver Wolcott was pretty strong on the Constitution. And you look at, uh, when I say pretty strong on the original Constitution, he was not in favor of coercing states. And you look at a lot of these New Englanders in this early period of time, they were secessionists. Uh, the fact that this Wolcott was more in line with the administration proves that, well, I mean, these New Englanders weren't going to support someone that wasn't a sectionalist, right? That wasn't interested in New England politics over the Union. 
And so uh, John Quincy Adams was also you know, deemed to be a nationalist. I mean, he was. And that would have been a major move. It would have had, I think, a couple of interesting ramifications. Number one, if Adams had actually been on the Supreme Court, of course, he wouldn't have been president. And he wouldn't have been Secretary of State. The other thing about that, of course, at, on the court, he could have done a lot more to advance his agenda than he actually did as president. I mean, he was a one-term president. Then he went to Congress. You could say that maybe as a member of the House of Representatives, he did a lot of damage uh, to the original Constitution. But regardless, he would have done more as a Supreme Court justice. And then, of course, you get Joseph Story, who was green. Joseph Story was young. And Joseph Story, as I talked about last week, was one of the most notorious abusers of the original Constitution in the history of the Supreme Court. And of course, his commentaries on the Constitution is often seen as an originalist manifesto, but it's not that at all. So Madison did a lot of damage to the Constitution through the Supreme Court. That digression aside, I want to talk about, you know, the 1950s, we really start to see the way that we think of the Supreme Court heat up. That's because the court, by the 1950s, had become this extra legislative branch. It had started to decide issues that greatly affected the states. Uh, and these issues were more of a social nature, right? So as we talked about with Jeff Deist on Thursday of last week, you know, why are social issues so important? Well, it's because the court has made it that way. But of course, the disease, the disease in all of this is nationalism. And we get a tremendous rush of nationalism in the 20th century. And one of the main uh, factors behind that, of course, is Hugo Black, who's also in How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. I've got a chapter on Black. Black is awful. The man was a terrible Supreme Court justice when it came to the original Constitution. He greatly expanded the powers of the central government through an incorrect understanding of the 14th Amendment. And that has led to the current mess that we're in where the Supreme Court becomes the final arbiter in so many of these decisions that shouldn't be under the purview of the Supreme Court to begin with. But um, we see the power of the court expand in the 20th century. And so by the time you get to Dwight Eisenhower, you start to see justices come under the microscope or the magnifying glass or whatever you know, enhancement you want to use, whatever term you want to use, for their political views. Because the left and the right started to recognize that, well, wait a second here. We've got a situation where the court has become this very important political arm. And so Eisenhower had one of his nominees rejected. Of course, Nixon had problems. Uh, Johnson had problems. George W. Bush had problems. Uh, I mean, and of course, Ronald Reagan famously with Robert Bork. That's probably... Uh, the most interesting rejection of a Supreme Court justice because Bork was an originalist. And it was thought that if you put Bork on the court, the Democrats, the Democrats were having none of it. You see, what, what is the threat of originalism to the Democrats? The threat of originalism is exactly what we're seeing in this potential decision of Roe v. Wade. Because anyone, the Democrats all know that their entire agenda is built on a house of cards. It's built on the court acting as an extra legislative branch or extra legal branch. It's, it's exactly what they've done over the last hundred years plus. So they know that if you get justices in there who actually look at the Constitution the way they're supposed to and say, wait a second here, um, 
This is a bad ruling. It's not based on the Constitution. No, it's based on politics. Their entire social agenda falls apart. It just disappears. And they know that if they tried to ram it through the Congress, the American public would not be on board with it nine times out of ten, and that it would probably be rejected by the court anyways. So you see, the Democrats know the Constitution is working against them at all times. They know it. This is why Nancy Pelosi stood up, ah, well, how, do you, how dare you say, I, of course it's constitutional. We're the Congress. We know what's constitutional. No, they don't. They don't know what's constitutional at all. They don't really care. They just want to ram it through and let the courts, which they have uh, believe they've controlled for a long period of time, and that's because of the Warren Court and then the Burger Court. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, you've got these very bad chief justices. The Rehnquist Court, William Rehnquist was actually a pretty good originalist. And so you would have had Bork and Rehnquist, a, a one-two punch. Uh, I mean, it would have been amazing. But um, regardless, I mean, that led to, you know, Bork's withdrawal led to uh, a- Anthony Kennedy, who was just, you know, milk toast. The guy's terrible. So what generally happened, though, Supreme Court justices were rejected for being unqualified. And you can make a case that the most recent nominee of course, now appointed to the court, Jackson, Justice Jackson, was not qualified for the position. There were better qualified people out there, but that decision was made based on politics. Biden trying to appease a certain part of the Democratic base. It's exactly what he was doing. There was no other reason for it. There were, I mean, she was um, not as qualified as other candidates, potential justices that could have been on the court. But it's a political move. We had to have a far leftist on there because Ruth Bader Ginsburg was seen to be a far leftist. So we got to replace a far leftist with a far leftist. Why? Because of politics. I mean, look, the court should be, uh, if we're going to use it for judicial review, if that's what's going to be the case, well, it should be well-versed on the original intent of the Constitution because that is the guide by which these people should follow, not case law or anything else. And that's what this particular piece gets into at American Spectator. So let me talk about that. The title is Conservative Justices Didn't Lie About Roe at Their Confirmation Hearings. So it says, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Speaker Nancy Pelosi, along with a host of other Democrats, are accusing the conservative justices of lying during their confirmation hearings about the importance of the precedent set by Roe v. Wade. The leaked draft opinion that would overturn Roe, they allege, proves the conservative justices misrepresented themselves to the Senate. Democratic lawmakers, journalists, and activists from comedian Stephen Colbert to MSNBC host Joy Reid to Representative uh, uh, Pamela Jayapal to Senator Elizabeth Warren have echoed the argument. Well, I mean, who cares about what Colbert? Now, it's Colbert, of course, but Colbert is how you would say his name. And Joy Reid. Joy Reid is is hemorrhaging audience. Jayapal, who cares about that? moron and Warren. I mean, she looked like a dang fool out there when she was doing this. But this is this is the thing. Well, these people lied. So that's perjury. You see, what are they angling for here? If they committed perjury in a Senate confirmation hearing, well, that's an impeachable offense. You see, the Democrats are angling to try to impeach Supreme Court justices or, or uh, they're trying to set up a situation where they could pack the court, add more justices. Now, I don't think the American public is going to be on board with either of these things. You see, the Democrats are going to miscalculate here, I firmly believe. While there is a theory that the majority of America is against 
uh, uh, getting rid of Roe v. Wade. The fact is that when you look at the number of states where this is where there's restrictions on this, there are more states that would be against keeping that precedent in place than those that would be for it. And the majority is generally found because you have large populous states like California, New York, etc., that have essentially supermajority populations. So we really don't have a majority in America that's against it. I'm sorry, that's that's against this potential decision. We have a majority in America that's against the decision to begin with, the 1973 decision, the real majority in America. In a statement issued Tuesday, the Democratic leadership said several of these conservative justices who are in no way accountable to the American people have lied to the U.S. Senate, ripped up the Constitution, and defiled both President and the Supreme Court's reputation. I mean, what a bunch of bunk. I mean, it's just stupid. But the, the thing is, um, they haven't lied to the U.S. Senate, as this piece is going to show. They said exactly what the situation entails. Representative Ted Lieu of California similarly said multiple justices lied about Roe v. Wade in order to get confirmed. Their mendacious actions are shredding the institution of the Supreme Court. How can we trust the opinions by the court when multiple justices brazenly lied to the American people in order to ascend to their positions? Well, first of all, I mean, I I actually agree with part of this. We shouldn't trust the opinions. These are opinions. They're opinions. That's an important thing to get out of this. They're opinions. But there are other arbiters. I mean, this is what essentially Jefferson was saying back in 1803. Well, this, this is Marshall's opinion. It doesn't mean anything. I don't have to follow it. It's the opinion of the court. I can do what I want. It's what Andrew Jackson did. All right, John Marshall's made his opinion. I'll let him enforce it. I'm not going to. What are you going to do about it? What are you actually going to do about it? Nothing. Jayapal said on MSNBC Wednesday, the Supreme Court justices lied under oath when they were testifying to Congress on this question. Now see? Lied under oath. That's perjury. Senator Warren took took that one step further, suggesting that the justices' supposed misdirection to the Senate should warrant prosecution. What should be investigated and prosecuted, she said, is the fact that people who were nominated to the Supreme Court stood up and said they believed in the rule of law and precedent. Then at the first opportunity, changed direction by 180 degrees and are going for a full repeal of Roe. So that's, that's prosecution. What does that mean? That's perjury. And what does prosecution mean? Well, impeachment. Now, Supreme Court justices have been impeached before, but none convicted. And that was actually a big deal in the, uh, in the Jefferson administration. Uh, Samuel Chase was a, was a major partisan on the bench. I mean, I can make a case that what the Democrats are complaining about here is legitimate. You shouldn't have a politicized Supreme Court. But you know where that comes from? Well, it comes from John Marshall, essentially. It comes from the Marshall Court. You see, Samuel Chase was a rabid partisan on the bench. He was not even allowing Republicans to have their evidence heard in court so that he was impeached and he wasn't convicted. And so from that point forward, John Marshall and all the other Supreme Court justices knew, and I talk about this again in how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America, John Marshall knew that they could be as partisan as they wanted to on the bench. They could do whatever they wanted. And of course, they would have no repercussions. So it's the Marshall Court that began the politicization of the Supreme Court in terms of decisions. Now, you could say that, of course, they didn't do this all the time. 
But certainly Marshall was acting as a Federalist partisan as Chief Justice. Right? And so this was important. So what Warren and others are complaining about here is that we have a politicized Supreme Court. However, they're fine with it as long as their people are in charge. If we actually had consistency, that would be a breath of fresh air. But um, we should be looking at removing justices for partisan reasons. However, this is not one of them. I don't think that this decision is partisan. The entire decision was based on a faulty understanding of the Constitution to begin with. It was a political decision that should never have been made. In fact, the people that should have been impeached were those that issued the original decision in 1973 because that was a purely partisan decision, a purely political decision. And all that would happen if Roe v. Wade is corrected is to say this was a bad decision to begin with. It was not based on anything real. It wasn't based on the Constitution. It wasn't based on an understanding of the Fourth Amendment or the Fourteenth Amendment. It wasn't based on anything except that this is what the justices wanted to see as a legislative outcome, and they took it out of the hands of Congress. Because Congress knows they couldn't get it passed. And if they did, it would be declared unconstitutional. It would be declared unconstitutional. At least it should be. Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine, who described herself as pro-choice and voted to confirm Justice Neil Gorsuch and Justice Brett Kavanaugh, said the leaked opinion was completely inconsistent with Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh said in their hearings and our meetings in my office. Collins, Collins has said that Kavanaugh repeatedly told her privately that he considered Roe to be settled law. But it wasn't really settled law, was it? It was a settled opinion. There was no law. There was no law that was passed in this way. All they did was say, well, states can't knock these things down. That's it. And in fact, if this was reversed, all they would say is that states can knock. I mean, states can do what they want here. States can have whatever type of legislation they want on this issue. You know why? Because, well, there's nothing here that's a federal issue. This is a state issue. But Gardy continues, this is all an overblown misunderstanding or more likely purposeful disregard of what the justices actually said. None of the justices lied. The justices simply stated that Roe v. Wade is the precedent of the Supreme Court, which it clearly is, and that they take that precedent seriously. Some also stated that as justices, they would approach the issue without an agenda and make an impartial legal decision. There's no reason to believe the justices didn't do just that. I mean, how do we know? We're not in their room where they're deliberating. They could say, well, this is an important decision. We have these precedents, and who's, who's to say? They didn't weigh that very carefully, that we need to think about this precedent before we go forward with this. Consider the justices' statements at their confirmation hearings that some Democrats alleged to be lies again. They perjured themselves. They didn't perjure themselves. I think it's very clear. In fact, uh, the piece quotes exactly what they said. Gorsuch said in his hearing in 2017, quote, Roe v. Wade decided in 1973 as a precedent of the United States Supreme Court. It was reaffirmed in Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992 and in several other cases. So a good judge would consider it as a precedent of the United States Supreme Court worthy as treatment of precedent like any other. Well, that's all true, right? As a judge, you look at case law, at least that's in our, in our system, which is what you shouldn't be doing. But anyways, this is what judges do. You look at case law, you don't, and you evaluate the, the uh, question based on case law. He's not, he's not lying there. Kavanaugh said at his hearing, quote, as a judge, it is an important precedent of the Supreme Court. By it, I mean Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. It's been reaffirmed many times. Later, he said it's settled 
as a president of the Supreme Court. Again, where is the lie there? He's not lying. He's stating the truth. Well, this is what it is. He didn't say that uh, he's going to do one thing or the other to it. And this is where, of course, these Senate confirmation hearings are just a political witch hunt. It's what they've become. They're ridiculous. They're ridiculous because it's all about politics because both sides know that the court has become this extra legislative branch. And it shouldn't be. This is where nullification, interposition, concurrent majority, all of these things should come into play because the state should be doing this stuff, not the Supreme Court. And all this comes back to a federal negative of state law because that's really what's at question here. We're not talking about a federal law. We're talking about state laws. And none of this should even be on the books. Justice Amy Coney Barrett, meanwhile, said, quote, Roe v. Wade clearly held that the Constitution protected a woman's right to terminate a pregnancy. Justice Samuel Lito, who authored the leaked majority opinion, said, quote, Roe v. Wade is an important precedent of the Supreme Court. It was decided in 1973. The Supreme Court has reaffirmed that decision. When a decision is challenged and it's reaffirmed, that strengthens its value. For his part, Justice Clarence Thomas said, quote, I believe the Constitution protects the right to privacy and I have no reason or agenda to prejudice that, the issue. So, I mean, there you go. Where is the perjury on that? It's not there. It's, it's not existent. But this is exactly what tact they're taking, and it's stupid. And they know that by issuing these sound bites, they're going to radicalize, and they're going to, you know, energize their radical base. It's exactly what they want. I mean, uh, Elizabeth Warren looking like a buffoon. I mean, she really does look like a buffoon. The woman is uh, is the caricature of the Karen of the Yankee. She really is. If you had to draw the ideal female Yankee, it would be Elizabeth Warren. I mean, it would be it would absolutely be her. No question about it. Alito's draft opinion would overrule Roe by arguing that there are factors in this case, such as the facts that Roe egregiously misinterprets the Constitution and is historically ar- and his horrifically argued that warrant overturning precedent. That is entirely consistent with taking Roe seriously as precedent. Alito's opinion is simply a judgment that Roe and Casey's flaws outweigh any reason to abide by the court's usual practice of following precedent. The draft opinion reaffirms the court's commitment to stare decisis, the principle that directs judges towards following precedent as the normal course of action, stating that it serves many valuable ends, such as protecting the interests of those who have taken action and reliance on a past decision. Alito notes in the opinion that the court is not bound to follow any precedent, saying that the court has long recognized that stare decisis is not an exorable command. It's true. I mean, the court can do what it wants. It's overturned decisions before. It's done it many times. Well, this decision was bad, and this decision is better, and they can overturn it again. This is where I caution people about the court, because you know what can happen here. And the, and the left is banking on this. If this is happens, well, they could just put a number of liberal judges on the bench, and then they could just bring a suit... Somebody's going to sue in, say, Oklahoma that their rights are being violated. And if you've got a Supreme Court that, um, that is now left-leaning, well, they'll just bring it before the court and they'll say, well, that state law is now unconstitutional. See, you don't really have real government anymore. You have government of men, not of laws. There's nothing there. You've just created an entire mess because the left won't leave it alone. And, I mean, on these issues that should be outside of the purview of the federal government to begin with. That's the real problem. You want peace? Have real federalism. He argues that the principle of stare decisis is less, even less binding when it comes to interpreting the Constitution because interpreting the nation's supreme law correctly is critically important. He says the stare decisis, quote, is at its weakest when we interpret the Constitution. 
It has been said that it's sometimes, it is sometimes more important than an issue. Be settled than it is be settled right. But when it comes to the interpretation of the Constitution, the great charter of our liberties, which was meant to endure through a long lapse of ages, we place a high value on having the matter settled right. He points out that it's nearly impossible for the American people to correct a judicial error in interpreting the Constitution because of how difficult it is to amend the Constitution. Quote, when one of our constitutional decisions goes astray, he says, the country is usually stuck with the bad decision unless we correct our own mistake. Alito notes three examples of constitutional decisions the Supreme Court has overturned. Brown v. Board of Education, which overturned the separate but equal doctrine. Atkins v. Children's Hospital, D.C., which overthrew the ruling that there could not be a minimum wage for women. And West Virginia Board of Education v. Barnett, which threw out a decision from three years prior that school children could be compelled to salute the flag. Alito then includes the three entire pages listing overturned Supreme Court precedents to bring attention to the fact that the Supreme Court has often overturned precedent and that doing so is well within the court's purview. Well, this is all 100% correct. And why would he have to do that? He has to do that because he's afraid of the, re- of the reaction from the left. Because he knows it's got to, you can't overturn a Supreme Court decision. Well, of course you can, because here. And of course, he's listing three decisions there that the left would champion of overturning. Well, they overturn these things. You're going to say we can't, well, I guess we can't overturn these then. Right? So this is important. And I think it's a, it's a wise move on Alito's part. Alito devotes a considerable portion of the opinion to arguing the factors of why precedent should be overruled in the cases of Roe and Casey. He notes that overruling precedent, quote, is a serious matter and that it is not a step that should be taken lightly. Well, where does that say that uh, this is something he didn't take seriously or he perjured himself? In this case, Alito said five factors weigh strongly in favor of overturning Roe and Casey. The nature of their error, the quality of their reasoning, the workability of the rules they impose on the country, their disruptive effect on other areas of the law, and the absence of concrete reliance. To briefly summarize, Alito argues that Roe represents an egregious error in constitutional interpretation that cannot be allowed to stand. It's horrifically reasoned, cannot be applied in a consistent manner because Casey's undue burden standard is unworkable and has distorted other legal doctrines, including those stemming from the First Amendment. In addition, Roe and Casey's notions of reliance are entirely unsupported. Alito notes that lawyers of all ideological backgrounds believe that Roe was wrongly decided. For instance, Alito says that abortion supporter and Yale constitutional scholar John Hart Eli, quote, wrote that he would vote for a statute very much like the one the court ended up drafting if he were a legislator, but his assessment of Roe was memorable, memorable and, I'm sorry, memorable, excuse me, and brutal. Roe was not constitutional law at all and gave almost no sense of an obligation to try to be. This is important. You know, this is a leftist saying, hey, look, I would, have, I would have voted for this legislation, but essentially what he's doing is calling a decision legislation. He concludes strongly, quote, the court has no authority to decree that an erroneous precedent is permanently exempt from evaluation under traditional stare decisis principles. A precedent of this court is subject to the usual principles of stare decisis, under which adherence to precedent is the norm, but not an exorable command. If the rules were otherwise, erroneous decisions like Plessy and Lochner would still be the law. That is not how stare decisis operates. Democrats allege the justices lied. Alleging the justices lied should note that a precedent of the court is not an exorable command. Justices can take a precedent seriously and still overrule it. Stephen Colbert raises a point worthy of consideration in his monologue in which he alleges the justices lied. 
So, he said, if these folks believe that Roe v. Wade was so egregiously decided, why didn't they tell the senators that, that during their confirmation hearing? The answer is a long-standing practice that judicial nominees do not answer questions on any p- potential future cases at confirmation hearings. Known as the Ginsburg Rule, the principle is that nominees must remain open-minded about any case that could come before them so that they can judge each case on concrete facts. The late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg summed up this principle by saying, quote, A judge sworn to decide impartiality can offer no forecasts, no hints, for that would show not only disregard for the specifics of the particular case, it would, it would display disdain for the entire judicial process. Now, it's a, I mean, I love this that they give it back to the left using their hero, this cult worship of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for the very thing that she said. The justices, therefore, cannot ethically offer any indication of their current leanings on a potential case. Someone could argue that Kavanaugh's statement that Roe has settled law is slightly harder to square, but really, it simply means that Roe is precedent. As Alito notes, there is no such thing as a decision that is precluded from examination of whether or not it should be overruled. Roe has settled law, but soon it may no longer be. I mean, again, it's a settled opinion, right? I mean, we have to understand this. It's a settled opinion. There's no law. There's no law. The federal government did not pass a law on any of this. A settled law is a settled opinion. We have to be clear that the courts are not creating law. They're issuing opinions. That's it. If, if, you, if we don't have the language right, we're in real trouble. And that's why the court has become this. What, they don't create law at all. This is what Eli is saying. If there's a piece of legislation, I would vote for it. But it's, this is an opinion based on nothing. We have to understand that. Moreover, in her, in her confirmation hearing, Justice Elena Kagan said the exact same, same thing as Kavanaugh, that Roe is settled law while noting that she would not comment on the merits of Roe because the court was likely to consider its continued validity in the near future. She said, quote, I do not believe it would be appropriate for me to comment on the merits of Roe v. Wade or any other, or other than to say that it is settled law entitled to presidential weight. While those alleging the justices latter, what those alleging the justices latter really trying to do is undermine the legitimacy of the conservative justices and their potential ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. No, what they're trying to do is set up a perjury uh, charge and then an impeachment. That's what they're trying to do. This is what the Democrats have figured out. Impeachment has become a political weapon. This is what they're really trying to do. Okay. And we know this because Trump was impeached twice. Now, what's going to happen if the Republicans take back Congress in 2023? I'm going to tell you. I'm going to predict it. They will impeach Joe Biden. If the Republicans take the House of Representatives, they will impeach Joe Biden, and they will do it, and they will do it, and they will do it because they want to have hearings and get all this material out in the public, because they can collect stuff. They can, they can work on was the 2020 election even legitimate? They can work on Hunter Biden. They can do all of these things, and they will impeach Joe Biden, guaranteed. And if a Republican president is elected in 2024, guess what's going to happen? If the Democrats take Congress. They'll impeach that president. In fact, I predict that we're going to have impeachments just about every single administration because this is now the political tool that is going to be used to go after presidents. Now, again, I can make a case that all these presidents should be impeached. Sure. And in fact, I think it's beautiful in some ways that all this is happening because it's really showing what the general government is. It's a cesspool of majoritarian democracy where the only The only goal is power. That's it. The only goal is power. 
The last sentence, it's all part of their effort to tear down the Supreme Court in order to force abortion on every state. But I mean, no, no, no. It's not about that. It's not to tear down the Supreme Court. It's not to do that. It's to increase their power. Okay. So that's why I like this piece. I mean, it really did outline and, and uh, give a nice several examples from these confirmation hearings. Nobody lied. But this is what the Democrats are going to rely on because they want to impeach these people. Guarantee it. That's what they're trying to do. All right. So uh, I wanted to cover this one more time. Hope you enjoyed it. I'll see you tomorrow for the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. <laughs>